This is the View from Apollo podcast, an ongoing conversation on alternative investing, economics, and the trends shaping up financial markets. In this episode of The View from Apollo, we're turning the tables. Not on you though, dear listener, but on us. For the first time, our regular host, Apollo Chief Economist Torsten Slock, is going to be a guest on the program. Joining us to talk to Torsten is Apollo's global head of content, J.P. Vicente. Torsten and J.P. discuss the outlook for the economy and the Fed's ongoing struggle to get inflation under control. Inflation is still too high, so that's why the Fed, the ECB, central banks globally need to keep interest rates elevated to make sure that they cool down the economy with the ultimate goal of cooling down inflation. But there are also some structural and long-term reasons why we should expect some upward pressure on inflation and ultimately therefore on interest rates. On the heels of Torsen's recently published Mid-Year Outlook white paper, which is available for download at apolloacademy.com, Torsen and JP also talk about why reshoring might be a reason inflation is still so high, how a slowdown in China can impact global GDP growth, and much more. And of course, the implications for markets and investors. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. I'm JP Vicente, Global Head of Content Strategy here at Apollo. And it is my pleasure today to stand in for the host of the View from Apollo podcast, the one and only Dr. Torsten Slock, our Chief Economist here at Apollo. And there's a particularly important reason for that. Torsten himself is our guest for this episode. That's right. The interviewer will become the interviewee. And the reason why we're trading roles today is because Torsten has just published his mid-year economic and capital markets outlook with lots of insights and critical topics to talk about. So now, without any further ado, let's get right to it. Torsten, welcome to the show. Thank you, JP. It's great to be on the other side of the mic for this show. I'm looking much forward to it. Awesome. So thank you, Torsten. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So let's dig in. I'd like to start with your views on the Federal Reserve's decision to skip a rate hike at the FOMC meeting in June. That was the first time the Fed didn't raise rates since March 2022. So what do you make of this, Torsten? Right move, wrong move, somewhere in between? And also, where do you see the Fed funds rate peaking? Yeah, this is a very important conversation in financial markets at the moment. The broader backdrop for their decision to pause at the meeting here they had a few weeks ago was that the Fed has been raising interest rates since March of 2022, when interest rates were zero, up until here when they stopped raising rates in June, a level that is now more than 5%. And that has been a very rapid move in a very relatively short period of time, faster than any rate hike cycle than we have seen before. So the decision from the FOMC was to say, well, let's look at how far along we have come in the process of slowing the economy down. And most importantly, from their perspective, let's see how far along we have come in terms of meeting our dual mandate, which is to have inflation at 2% and have the economy at full employment. And the problem is that inflation is still not at 2%. It's around 5%. And the unemployment rate is also quite low. So their assessment was to say, well, we have already done a lot over the last uh, 14 months, so let's just take a pause. But the signal that they sent at this meeting was clearly to say, we should expect in markets more rate hikes to come. Specifically, they said, expect two more rate hikes this year. So it was a a hawkish pause where they were saying, we're not quite there yet, yet in terms of getting inflation down towards 
or two percent target. But at the same time, let's take a break and give it a little bit of time and see the data how it plays out over the next month or two, and then we can reassess when we come to the July meeting. So it was a little bit of a puzzle why they paused when at the same time they did come with fairly hawkish statements around the decision. But um, the short answer to your question is that uh, they have paused for now, but it's clear that if inflation remains sticky, then we will still see them hiking more later this year. That's a great point, Torsten. And I wanted to sort of juxtapose it with what's happening in Europe, because the European Central Bank did raise rates in June, and President Christine Lagarde appeared very resolute in not right? Pausing or skipping. Meanwhile, the Bank of Canada skipped and then he, they resumed hiking rates again. So what do you make of those moves? Yeah, that's true. And the Reserve Bank of Australia also has decided to continue to raise rates. So the Fed is uh, standing a little bit alone and it might be, as you're saying, it might look a little bit odd. Uh, why is the Fed not hiking when everyone else is still hiking? Uh, the answer to that is that the other central banks are behind Uh, where the Fed is. Uh, the Fed did start this rate hike cycle before others, and at the same time, the speed with which the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates has been faster. I generally view the ECB as roughly six months behind. The ECB is still catching up to the level of where short-term interest rates are in the US. Generally speaking, central banks globally, and in particular in the G7 countries, they are simply not done fighting inflation. They still need to at least keep interest rates at these levels for a very long time, as Jay Powell said at the last meeting, for potentially a couple of years. And including the Europeans, the Canadians, the Australians, as they continue also on their hiking cycles, uh, we should expect central banks to remain hawkish and keep the cost of capital elevated for quite an extended period. That makes a lot of sense. But it seems when I when I listen to you, Torsten, it seems that when we put all of this in the blender, we end up with one potential conclusion here, that the natural rate of interest, at least in the Western world, right, appears to have shifted up. Do you agree with that? Yes, no, and why? Yes, there's some very important dimensions to that critical question, which we also cover in the paper uh, that we have published here, uh, our biannual outlook, of course, for the rest of 2023. There's some cyclical reasons and there's some structural reasons why the level of interest rates likely is higher. The cyclical reason, of course, is that inflation is still too high. So that's why the Fed, the ECB, central banks globally need to keep interest rates elevated to make sure that they cool down the economy with the ultimate goal of cooling down inflation. But there are also some structural and long-term reasons why we should expect some upward pressure on inflation and ultimately, therefore, on interest rates. Specifically, three factors are starting to play a role in why we may see interest rates at a permanently higher level. First of all, deglobalization is likely to mean that we'll have more onshoring, nearshoring, friendshoring, basically factors that give more production in the U.S. or more production domestically in G7 countries and less production in, say, China, Mexico, other countries. And as a result of that, onshoring, we simply have, therefore, higher cost of production, which argues for higher inflation and ultimately for higher rates. The second thing that's putting upward pressure on inflation and on long-term rates is the energy transition. The energy transition is associated with some adjustment costs, some significant changes in the way we produce and get energy. And all that is also going to lift inflation and ultimately, therefore, also lift the level of interest rates. And third and finally, immigration, including in the U.S., is likely to be 
flowing less relatively, at least compared to what we have seen earlier. And that also means that the cost of production in terms of labor, in terms of uh, inflation more broadly, uh, is probably going to also be somewhat permanently higher. So those three things combined, namely deglobalization, energy transition, and less immigration, are likely reasons why we should expect to see some more upward pressure on the cost of capital. And that's, of course, not only here in the near term, but that's certainly also something when we think about it over the next three to five years. That makes a lot of sense, Dorsen. Thank you. And in fact, I did read your mid-year outlook paper, which, by the way, is available for download at our Apollo Academy website at apolloacademy.com. So I surely encourage all of our listeners to check it out. In the paper, Torsten, you argue that the main question facing us today is whether we're going to have a soft landing or a hard landing. I'd like to explore those scenarios with you a little bit. So let's start with the argument for a soft landing. What's the rationale behind that argument? Yeah, the key reason why we should expect a soft landing is really that if you think about the nature of this shock that we have been going through with the pandemic and everything that has been coming along with it, including what has been happening when the Fed raised rates and what that meant for the banking sector is that the Fed is still very much on top of these developments and the nature of the shock, for example, in the banking sector on the commercial real estate side is generally smaller than the nature of the shock that we saw in 2006, 7 and 8, where it was residential investment, which made up at the time about 80% of GDP whereas commercial real estate today only makes up about 15% of GDP. So if you give a shock to one sector, in this case, the commercial real estate sector, then you should expect that to give a more muted impact on the economy and therefore something that's more manageable for the Fed to control. So the bottom line in why we should expect a soft landing is that the Fed is watching every single indicator very, very carefully. And therefore, as this process plays out with commercial real estate, this process plays out in the banking sector. The Fed should, under that scenario, be able to control the slowdown and stop their hiking and maybe even eventually reverse their hiking once the economic data does begin to slow down. So there is a scenario where you could argue that we could see a softer landing. That makes a lot of sense, Dorsen. So let me dive a little bit deeper into the conundrum that you talked about, because the key issue with commercial real estate is that much of the debt finance behind it now sits in regional banks' balance sheets. And the concern is that the defaults or potential defaults in the space could have a domino effect on those institutions whose balance sheets are already fragile after the failure of Silicon Valley Bank earlier in the year. So that said, not all CREs created equal either. Right. So talk to me a little bit about your take on this key issue. Yeah, this is really important, JP. So I would argue that there are two reasons why uh, the hard landing scenario is still more likely than the soft landing scenario. The first one is exactly as you're outlining, that the banking sector is going through quite an adjustment because of the CRE issue and because, of course, ultimately of interest rates having gone up. So the cost of capital have increased because the Fed has raised the Fed funds rate. That has made it more expensive to finance projects. That has made it more expensive for consumers to buy a car, to buy a house. Also made it more expensive to buy a piece of furniture, washer, dryer. Anything that requires financing has seen a slowdown. And one area that is particularly impacted by higher cost of capital is indeed the CRE sector, especially office and retail is, of course, being impacted. Because remember, the way 
that you finance an office building is by a 30-year loan that is refinanced every three years. And if you every three years come around and then now to need to look at, well, what is the price of this office building? And if that has gone down, like as we've seen here more recently, 30%, well, that means that you need to come up with 30% equity. And on top of that, the refinancing has to happen now at a level of interest rates that's a lot higher than when the loan was originated. So the problem is for the regional banks that they account for roughly 75% of all commercial real estate lending in the banking sector. So therefore, the risks are rising that overall credit conditions simply are getting tighter and it's getting more complicated for the banks to adjust to this situation. So that might imply that we're going to get tighter credit conditions and therefore going to see a slowdown, which we're already seeing in lending by the banks, not only to commercial real estate loans, but also lending to consumers, to corporates, and even also to mortgages and therefore households more broadly. So the first argument for harder lending is there are some issues with the banking sector that is now stepping a bit harder on the brakes that runs the risk, of course, of credit flowing in the public markets less easily as it did before. The second and really much easier argument for why we might get a harder landing is that inflation is just turning out to be more sticky. And the problem with that, of course, is that if inflation core PCE today is roughly 5%, the Fed's target is that inflation should be 2%. So the Fed is not done with raising interest rates and therefore the Fed is not done fighting inflation. As a result of that, the Fed will continue to keep interest rates elevated until, until the economy begins to slow down, not only the labor market, but maybe even also the housing market needs to slow down. So with that comes, of course, the risk also that the Fed will be stepping so hard on the brakes that the economy will begin to have a faster slowdown than what we really all were hoping for. So I think the most likely scenario today, in summary, really is that the harder landing still seems like the most likely outcome. Interesting. I want to go back a little bit to the to the commercial real estate part. I hear a lot of folks, analysts in the market, also talking about bright spots in the commercial real estate areas such as storage and warehousing, et cetera. So perhaps that could be also a contributing factor, softening the impact a little bit. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's correct. Commercial real estate, if you at least look at the broadest index, office only makes up 15% of the total. Mm. So you're right that there are some bright spots in particular in industrial and warehousing. We are seeing a manufacturing boom in the US economy. And that's certainly where an arrow is pointing in the opposite direction, namely that we see significant increase in construction, especially in manufacturing, partly because of the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act, but also because of the general deglobalization trend that uh, we spoke about earlier, where you're seeing simply more money coming in, especially as you're mentioning to industrial and to warehousing in commercial real estate. So it's absolutely correct that uh, commercial real estate is a very mixed bag of all kinds of things uh, where you certainly have some areas, in particular office and retail and also net lease being under some downward pressure, but where there's some upward pressure and there's some positive trends going on in other areas, including most importantly in manufacturing, industrial and warehousing. You mentioned that you see the odds tilted a little bit towards hard landing. Can you put a number on it? Yeah, so I think that uh, for a long time, uh, you and I were talking about a no landing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And remember uh, that no landing basically meant that uh, inflation was still going up and rates were still going up and the Fed was still battling inflation from a 
perspective of uh, this will quote unquote never come down and we still have a lot more to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're getting towards the end of the Fed tiking cycle. So I think that the no landing scenario has meaning that we by the end of the year still will be battling inflation and still will be hiking rates. I think that that will only have a 10% probability where we sit today. I think that a most likely scenario, as we talked about, is hard landing, which now I think has a 60% chance and a soft landing has a non-trivial 30% chance. So uh, we're not saying that we will not have a soft landing, but there is still a chance that the Fed could pull this off and we could be very lucky that inflation will fall and employment will fall and we'll get the economy in a stable equilibrium by the end of the year. But still, the risks are still with, in particular, the struggles in the banking sector and inflation at risk of being sticky, that uh, we are going to see a sharper slowdown in the economic data over the coming months. We're beginning to see that a little bit in some of the high-frequency data for restaurant sales, some of the credit card weekly data spending has also been slowing. But the bottom line is that I still think investors should be positioned for the harder landing scenario. You mentioned inflation has been much harder to tame than many had expected when the Fed kicked off the tightening cycle back in, in March 2022. So you said that already. Core inflation is around 5% you know, a year and clearly a far cry, right, from the Fed's 2% target. So despite being sticky, though, one of the interesting things to me, right, is that the driving profile of inflation has also been shifting over the past, uh, you know, call it year and a half or so, because it started with a co- with the cause being, you know, uh, supply chain issues, and then it became demand issues. But now it's demand, but it's a quote unquote focused demand on services. And then you see folks like leaning towards, you know, core inflation and then super core inflation and so on. And that's becoming a little messy. How do you make sense of all this going forward? And how does the Fed get the job done once and for all? Oh, that's an outstanding question because there's just so many things about inflation uh, and so many moving parts uh, that it sometimes is indeed difficult to keep a cool head and, <laughs> and figure out which data to look at. But you're absolutely right, and I completely agree. Initially, when we were all sitting at home during COVID and we were ordering more stuff online and that stuff could not be delivered because the containers could not come from China, they could not come from abroad, and then the price of those containers ultimately exploded to much higher levels. for transporting a 40-foot container from China to the U.S. West Coast at the peak. That's now down to normal lower levels of where we were before the pandemic. So exactly as you're highlighting, goods inflation was spiking higher during the pandemic, and that has now come down to much more normal levels. So in some sense, the goods inflation component of the CPI basket is now really back to where it was before the pandemic. So initially, inflation was really driven by goods, and goods inflation peaked at around 10% year over year, and is now basically back to roughly the 2% of where we were before the pandemic. So that has shifted from that goods or supply side inflation to now that inflation is really driven more by demand. And what do we mean by demand? Well, demand normally, at least in the current discussion, is because that savings during the pandemic were very substantial. Households during the pandemic were saving money, partly because there were stimulus checks, unemployment benefits, Childcare tax credits, PVP loans. We were all sitting at home, not able to go to restaurants, not able to fly on airplanes and stay in hotels. And as a result of that, savings in the household sector basically increased in excess of where they otherwise would have been by roughly $2 trillion. And we have only, in our calculation, burned through roughly a trillion of that. So one very important reason why we are seeing demand inflation is that the amount of money that people have in their checking accounts and really Fed data shows across the income distribution and also data from some of the private banks also show across the income distribution is still very high today. 
levels of savings relative to where we were in 2019. And why is that important? Well, that's important because sitting here in the summer of 2023, people are still booking flights on airplanes. They're still staying at hotels, still going to restaurants, going to sporting events, to concerts, to Broadway shows. All the data that we look at still shows a very strong tailwind in the form of demand, in particular for consumer services. And remember, consumer services makes up 80% of GDP, whereas goods and manufacturing only makes up 20% of GDP. So the long-winded answer to your question is that initially, inflation was driven by supply, but today it's driven more by demand, especially this tailwind from savings in the household sector, that consumers still have a lot of money left that they have saved during the pandemic. The Fed that suggests that households by the end of this year will run out of these excess savings. So we should expect to see the economic data over the next three to six months begin to slow down. And as we just talked about, can that happen in a soft landing way where we gradually see the data comes down? Or is there a risk, which is our view, that we might get a recession instead where we do have a harder landing as the household sector runs out of savings and interest rates are still very elevated? And with that backdrop, Inflation really has been shifting from initially being driven by supply to now being driven by demand. And once those tailwinds to why demand is strong run out, we should expect to see the economy gradually begin to slow down. And honestly, if someone from the Fed were on this call, they would say, but this is the whole idea with raising interest rates. The whole idea Mm -hmm. with raising interest rates is to have people buy fewer cars, fewer washers, go less and travel, stay less at hotels and fly less on airplanes. So The Fed, in some sense, is succeeding with slowing growth down, and that's why demand ultimately and demand inflation should also begin to slow down. We're just not quite seeing that yet, and that is, of course, the reason why the Fed needs to keep interest rates elevated. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Have you looked or done anything in terms of figuring out much of this spending that we're seeing right now in services and what have you is pent-up demand? How far are we from normalization? Yeah, that's a really important question. And to answer that, we need to look at different sectors. For example, look at the airline industry, the restaurant industry, the hotel industry, and ask where are occupancy rates relative to the capacity of those industries. The main issue with that question is that capacity in a lot of these industries, for example, in airlines, has actually declined relative to the capacity that we had in 2019. So therefore, the big question really underlying what you're asking about is that what is the new normal? Just again, take hotels and airlines and and restaurants as examples. Well, we are all going out more now and eating at restaurants and flying on airplanes than we have done before. But the capacity in the industry has been declining. And that means that uh, therefore the price of a lot of these things have gone up a lot more. So the price inflation we have seen across the board in a lot of consumer services, also everything against sporting events, concerts, Broadway shows, where we have indicators of consumer services have shown fairly significant increases in prices. So therefore, it is really a debate about what is the new normal? And do we go out now more and travel to see our family? Because we, gee, we were sitting at home for a long time. <laughs> now I got to go and see my family more than ever before because I couldn't see them for all these years. Where we are relative to quote-unquote normal depends very importantly on what the new normal is, in particular in the services sectors that that we're talking about here. Wonderful. I'd like to dive, you know, a little bit deeper also into the housing market, Torsten, which has shown, as you had said before, strong resilience, right, despite the fact that we have rising rates. So the current theory is that A, supply has not matched demand for the residential real estate part of the economy, and B, 
existing home sales inventory has diminished because everybody's clinging to their low mortgage rates that they got before the Fed started tightening. Exactly. So talk to me about that. What are your views on housing today? Yeah, that's exactly right. And let's talk about it the way you just did, namely first in terms of supply and in terms of demand. Mm-hmm. So let's look at supply and the housing market. The inventory of homes for sale is very, very low, simply because construction of homes, not only during COVID, but also before COVID, was relatively low and relatively limited. So we have, and we continue to have, on all metrics, a very low inventory of homes for sale in the US. The multiple listing services only lists roughly around 600,000 homes for sale at the moment. Compare that with in 2006, where we had more than 1.2 million homes for sale. So from that dimension, not only has the population grown tremendously since 2006, but we also have less than half of the amount of homes listed for sale at the moment. At the same time, if you think about demand for homes, as you're highlighting, first of all, mortgage rates have gone up. So of course, anyone who's considering moving now will need to take out a new mortgage at 7% instead of the 3% that they might have taken here before the pandemic or during the pandemic where interest rates were very low. So there's a lot of people who are holding back with putting their house on the market simply because it's limiting their demand that mortgage rates have gone up so much. And thinking about demand more broadly, not only have mortgage rates gone up, which was supposed to slow housing down, but remember also job growth is still quite strong. Wage growth is still quite strong. And as we spoke about a minute ago, household savings are also quite elevated. And these tailwinds of strong job growth, still solid wage growth, very significant elevated levels of savings, those tailwinds have more than offset the increase in the mortgage rate that we have seen. So the bottom line is supply is very low. Demand is actually still reasonably strong because of you both have strong job growth, strong wage growth, significant savings. And by the way, you also have some strong demographic forces. So the bottom line is you can only conclude, and in particular with the recovery in the housing market that we're seeing in the last three, four months, that the Fed has just not succeeded with slowing housing down. And the final point on this, and sorry for elaborating on this point, but this turns out to be really important. Remember in the CPI basket, housing has a weight of 40%. So why is this important? Because if housing is now beginning to recover And that recovery is happening at a time when inflation is still very elevated at 5%. That means that we're beginning to run the risk that inflation might not come down from 5 to 2 the way that the Fed wants it to, but we may run the risk that inflation is actually going to move up from here simply because traffic of prospective buyers of new homes is rising in the last three, four months. Existing home sales and new home sales has been rising in the last three, four months. You've seen the average number of bidders per sold property has also increased from two bidders per sold property here six months ago to now three. And on top of that, you've also seen home builder confidence and home buyer confidence go up. So maybe the conclusion in this is that there is a real risk and a real debate in markets at the moment that maybe we don't only need to have softer labor markets, but maybe we also need to have a softer housing market for the Fed to succeed and getting inflation back to 2%, which basically brings me back to the main conclusion that we have been talking about, namely that the cost of capital is going to stay elevated for a very extended period. The Fed is simply not going to lower rates. And that becomes very important when we turn later on to our conversations about what does that mean for credit? 
What does that mean for financial markets? Oh, absolutely. But um, before we get there, I'm going to throw a little gasoline to the fire here <laughs> based on what you just told me, because I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about manufacturing for a second. You know, specifically, I'd like to, to get your thoughts on what many are calling the beginning of a quote-unquote manufacturing super cycle here in the United States, which is driven in large part, right, by government policy and a process of reshoring and Frenchshoring that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on this? And do you think this could be responsible for the resilience we've seen in the economy cycle? Absolutely. This is very important. I mean, think about it. In the last 50 years, the U.S. and also Europe and, and Japan and, and the, really the OECD economies more broadly, they have basically been moving more and more towards being service economies. And what, are, what do we mean by service? Service means basically going away from manufacturing, going away from being assembly lines, going away from simply being production floors of goods, simply because production of goods was more and more gravitating towards China, towards emerging markets that had lower cost of labor and were able to do it cheaper and therefore ended up having simply a competitive advantage in producing goods and manufacturing. So the fact that we're now seeing a reversal of this, exactly as you're highlighting, because of policies is just truly incredible in my view, and therefore is indeed playing a very critical role in why the economy is actually still doing so well because of the Inflation Reduction Act and because of the CHIPS Act. And as you said, French-shoring, onshoring, near-shoring, basically the geopolitical issue is going into this discussion, creating more production of things inside the US and inside Europe is simply throwing some fuel on the fire in terms of inflation and economic activity, exactly at a time when economic activity and inflation is already quite elevated. Torsten, it's actually great that you talked about China because I, I wanted to ask you about it anyhow, because the Chinese economy hasn't really experienced the strong rebound that everyone expected after they lifted their zero COVID policy. Needless to say, a slow grow in China is to have implications to the world economy at large. So what are your views on China today and should investors be concerned about it? Yeah, there are really three headwinds to Chinese growth at the moment. First of all, the U.S., is trying to slow growth. Europe is trying to slow growth. Japan is trying to slow growth. And you also have Australia also trying to slow growth. So with that broad backdrop of the G7 countries trying to slow down economic growth, that is having a negative impact on Chinese exports to the OECD area, and in particular, of course, to the G7 area specifically. And that means that the first thing that is having a negative impact on China is that the global business cycle is in the process of slowing down. And why is that the case? Because that's what the central banks want. That's what the central banks are trying to achieve, slower growth with the ultimate goal of slowing inflation. So that's the first thing that is by far the biggest driver of why China is slowing. The second reason why China is slowing is that they have had quite a property bubble. And there's been some quite interesting developments. For many years, the response from Chinese authorities was to just try to support the property market with more policies. But more recently, Chinese authorities have turned more towards focusing on supporting infrastructure relative to the property market. And that is likely because of a recognition that there is more of a bubble in the property market that is also beginning to have some negative consequences on the growth outlook and more broadly, some negative consequences on consumers in the Chinese economy. So the property bubble is a second headwind to the outlook for China overall. And the third and final 
reason, of course, where we have been discussing a lot, of course, in the US is that China is at the moment also having undergone a number of regulatory changes and a number of interventions in different directions in the private sector has raised some geopolitical worries globally from US companies, from European companies about the stability of their investments, the interest that US and European companies might have in doing FDI, foreign direct investment in China, which is also a headwind that the rest of the world with a geopolitical backdrop is also beginning to look a bit differently. So the conclusion is there's some cyclical reasons. There are some property bubble domestic reasons in China, and there are some geopolitical broader reasons why the Chinese growth picture is uh, facing quite some headwinds at the moment. The Chinese authorities have tried to respond to that by trying to limit the speed of the slowdown in growth. But in my view, I think that the risks still where we sit today are that Chinese growth will continue to be under some downward pressure. So when you use this conversation we just had as a backdrop, how do you expect financial markets to react to all of this? And how can investors consider allocating assets in this current environment? Yeah, this is, of course, really important. And of course, the ultimate question of uh, figuring out what does this all mean for investors? I would say that the first answer to that is that uh, let's just summarize what we have talked about in this conversation. First of all, Short-term interest rates are going to stay elevated for, as Jay Powell was saying in the last FOMC meeting, for what he called a couple of years. So that's the first conclusion we should be using when we think about asset allocation or our pie chart in terms of where we invest. The second issue is that inflation is likely to continue to stay also elevated for potentially quite some time. So that also becomes important when we think about what sectors are more sensitive to inflation, what sectors are less sensitive to inflation. And third and finally, what is also important is that the banking sector probably needs to go through some adjustment. So that probably also means that we should be thinking about what does that then mean in terms of credit from the banking sector? What does it mean in terms of credit coming from the sources, in particular the regional banks that normally have provided credit in not only in the US economy, but more broadly with the Fed and the ECB trying to slow things down in the global economy? What it means for asset allocation? Well, that probably means that risky assets, meaning the stock market and credit, is probably going to be challenged, at least in the near term, if there is a risk of a harder landing, and at the same time, if there is a risk of interest rates staying elevated. So that runs the risk that highly levered companies, in particular in credit, triple C companies, that will be suffering from the double whammy of both higher cost of capital, because interest rates are going to stay high, and at the same time, slowing earnings. So that means that lower rated credit is likely to be more vulnerable to this combination of high interest rates and slowing growth. At the same time, tech and growth and venture capital is likely to also be more vulnerable simply because of this risk that high interest rates are going to be here with us for quite some time. And remember, tech and growth uh, stocks and in credit names are characterized by being long duration cash flows that are discounted with the net present value of the discount rate today. And if the discount rate today goes up, that means that the net present value of those cash flows goes down. So that's why the total value of venture capital in the US, uh, since it peaked in November of 2021, has declined basically 60% and has really not shown much signs of recovering. So there are also some risks with interest rates do stay elevated that venture capital and growth in tech is going to be more vulnerable. So that brings me, of course, to then what's more attractive and what could be the things to look at in this situation is, of course, that there could be some opportunities in private credit. There could be some opportunities with buying simply duration betting on long rates declining. 
There could also be some opportunities in looking at value. Uh, broadly speaking, value stocks uh, will tend to do better because they're not sensitive to the level of interest rates being so high. So there's a number of different things that one can do. Now is the time for investors to do the homework and exactly try to lean into the areas where the opportunities are. And there are a lot of things today that are a lot cheaper than what they were just 12 months ago, simply because of the Fed having raised rates and the ECB having raised rates. There is a lot of turbulence out there, but that's not an argument for not doing anything. That's actually an argument for really doing the homework and figuring out where are the opportunities at the moment in this windy environment that we're going through. Well, Thorsten, thank you so much for all the insights. This has been a great, great conversation. Unfortunately, we reached our allotted time here, but I know that from listening to your last podcast, you've added a new segment to the show that you call a quote-unquote personal recommendation. So what's your personal recommendation today? It could, it could be anything, a book you're reading, a movie you've seen. What's occupying your time when you're not thinking about economics here at Apollo? Well, I've been uh, watching a lot of soccer. The Premier League it just ended here a few <laughs> weeks ago with uh, Manchester City. On I know you're a fan. <laughs> so uh, I've been spending some time also watching uh, the qualifiers that are going on in Europe also. The soccer part of my life uh, still takes up uh, a lot of my free time. Every Tuesday, including Tonight, Tonight, I play in Brooklyn Bridge go. Park uh, on <laughs> Pier 5, um, so I'll be out there running around. Our team uh, is very good, and we have been winning in the last few seasons. Uh, this season, we're facing uh, some pretty tough uh, opponents, so we're trying to do everything we can to, to take uh, the trophy again. So, so what's going on in this world of soccer? There's a little break here during the summer, uh, but uh, I'm getting fired up for the seasons as we begin here in, in September, both the Premier League and uh, national teams uh, playing against each other. That's awesome. That's terrific. Well, thank you for that. That's great. I have a personal recommendation as well, and mine is a musical one. I am recommending folks to check out the latest album by The National. It's titled First Two Pages of Frankenstein, and I've been a huge fan of The National for a long time. I'm one of the sad dads, as they call it, you know, and this album really doesn't disappoint. So Matt Badinger's brooding lyrics remain fantastic. The Dasner Brothers' guitars are awesome. Brian Davenport on the drums, delivering as always. His brother Scott on the bass. Great. And they have some special guests on the album as well with a great collaboration with Taylor Swift. It's really, really, really beautiful. And with that, I'd like to thank you, Torsten, so much for being with us today. And thank you all so much for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you for taking the host role today. It made my job so easy. This podcast was recorded on June 27, 2023. Thanks for listening. A quick reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Audible, or by visiting ApolloAcademy.com, our educational website dedicated to alternative investing, where you can also sign up to have Torsten's Daily Spark economic blog delivered directly to your inbox. Once again, thanks for listening. Apollo Global Management Incorporated, together with its subsidiaries, Apollo, makes no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, with respect to the accuracy, reasonableness, or completeness of any of the statements made during this podcast, including, but not limited to, statements obtained from third parties. Opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the current judgment of the speaker as of the date indicated. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Apollo and are subject to change at any time without notice. Apollo does not have any responsibility to update this podcast to account for such changes. 
there can be no assurance that any trends discussed during this podcast will continue. Statements made throughout this podcast are not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for accounting, legal, or tax advice and do not constitute an investment recommendation or investment advice. Investors should make an independent investigation of the information discussed during this podcast, including consulting their tax, legal, accounting, or other advisors about such information. Apollo does not act for you and is not responsible for providing you with the protections afforded to its clients. This podcast does not constitute an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security, product, or service, including interest in any investment product or fund or account managed or advised by Apollo. Certain statements made throughout this podcast may be forward-looking in nature due to various risks and uncertainties Actual events or results may differ materially from those reflected or contemplated in such forward-looking information. As such, undue reliance should not be placed on such statements. Forward-looking statements may be identified by the use of terminology including, but not limited to, may, will, should, expect, anticipate, target, project, estimate, intend, continue, or believe, or the negatives thereof, or other variations thereon, or comparable terminology.